Hello, it's Julie Bindle, and my guest today is Mo Lee. And I remember looking down at my bedding and there was blood on the bedding and the sheets. I was lucky, so lucky to be alive. I felt so lucky to be alive. Mo is a retired art teacher, a brilliant artist, an author. And it turned out that we lived in Leeds in 1980 at the same time. She was approaching her 21st birthday and I was approaching my 18th birthday and we lived within metres of each other. Mo is a survivor of an attack by Peter Sutcliffe, dubbed by the press as the Yorkshire Ripper, who, when he was eventually convicted in January 1981, he had murdered 13 women and left seven others for dead. Sutcliffe was never, ever charged with or convicted of the horrendous attack on Mo Lee, but police did eventually accept that he was her attacker. In this interview, we talk about our parallel lives, about how different we were as young women. I was still a teenager. She was about to reach the age of 21. At the time that Sutcliffe was stalking the streets of West Yorkshire and elsewhere in the north of England, terrorising women and unlifting a stone under which the worst kind of misogyny would creep out and then flood the entire country. And that misogyny was exacerbated by the press reporting of the so-called Yorkshire Ripper murders and the disastrous failed police inquiry. Misogyny underpinned both the press and the policing. And of course, meant that women were effectively told there was a curfew on us at night in the years where the police could not catch this man because they were looking in different directions. Here's Mo. I was born and raised in working class Liverpool and the misogyny was was massive then. It was like that was normal. That felt normal to me. I had two older brothers and as the youngest girl with these two brothers, I, I watched them and I thought, well, why are they getting all these privileges? I'm having to do the washing, the ironing, the cleaning, the cooking, the shopping as I'm getting older. Why are they not doing that? You know, why are they having all this free time? So I became quite a tomboy. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to be told what to do. And I was a little bit rebellious, but my dad was not, he's still alive, but he was heavy handed. Let's leave it there. And and then, it, yeah, it, it was not a comfortable life. I lived in fear at home. Yeah. And fortunately, my escape was my little box room. We had a three bed semi, which my dad was ever so proud of. And I had the box room. The two boys had the their own you know, bunk beds, and I at least had the retreat of my box room, and that's where I found solace in being creative and doing my artwork. Work, but the house was ruled by fear. The house was definitely ruled by fear, and when I walked out of the house, it was my fear was continued. As you walk down the street, you could be attacked by. There were gangs. There was, you know, everyone was fighting and football chucked at you or kicked at you, you know, stones being thrown at you. It was really quite grim. But that was normal to me. You know, you were just a girl. You weren't you weren't important. And if someone fancied having a go at you, they would. It was like, what? And so, you know, at school, everyone was fighting. There was always a cock of a school or gangs. There was, you know, don't wait at the bus stop because the gangs from this school will come and get you and all of that. So, I mean, I did enjoy parts of my childhood, but that was the kind of overarching fear that I was very used to living under. And then as an art student, you know, that gave me the, the liberation of leaving Liverpool and getting out of that. And I did apply to Goldsmiths. You, only two people from the School of Art in Liverpool were allowed to go and 
be interviewed at Goldsmiths because it's such a prestigious uh, fine art degree. And I, I didn't get in, but my my friend got in. So I got my second choice was Leeds because that was considered at the time very avant-garde. Mm. And there was a lot of kind of, it was, it was, it looked adventurous. So that's I remember the art students in Leeds. They were very, yeah. very well turned out. They yeah. were always quite um, striking. You couldn't mm. miss one of the art yeah. students mm. around town. Yeah. Hedley, which is yeah. Yeah. So that was me. I was, I became part of that world and, you know, wore a lot of black <laughs> and became, I, I really liked dressing androgynous and the androgyny really appealed to me. Right. So you'd wear like builders jackets and big boots, adopt everyone had Dr. Martin shoes. That was compulsory, you know, and you could wear them forever and ever because they were really made extremely well and, and trousers and, you know, wasn't a kind of punk kitten. I was a kind of androgynous, not very exciting looking downtrodden pub, punk but you did you didn't want to dress up you know unless you were a, a, a an elaborate punk and you had all your hair colored I did color my hair bright yellow at one point it was all cut short bleached till it was nearly white with all these beautiful acid yellow tips I looked like a dandelion I thought it was glorious Brilliant. and uh that that was that was just so celebratory you could reinvent yourself in Leeds but yeah. one thing is for sure in yeah. 1980, in October, mm. you were attacked. In November, I was followed. In During the time building up to that, because I'd only been in Leeds not long at all, mm. weeks, we would have breathed the same air at some stage. Yeah. We would have been sure. in the same vicinity. Yeah. If we maybe stood at the bar next to each other, I'm sure. Okay. So, look, please tell us okay. what happened to you. Um, right. In October, when you were walking home, have you were organising your twenty-first birthday party? Yeah, so I went out on my own. It was a Saturday night. My boyfriend at the time was down in London on a campaign for nuclear disarmament march. So it was unusual that I was on my own, but a pretty independent person. I thought, right, I'm going to go out and meet my my art student friends in Headingley um, because we need to plan a bit of a. 21st birthday party which would have been coming up in a few days time so I went into town and then walked up to the student area and I met my friends in the Little Park pub and we had a few beers and we, we hatched a kind of measly easily planned to do something jolly which probably involved like going to the pub and then followed up by a curry that would have been you know at perfect the corner, night at the corner path yeah the corner but at least path. we yeah. Oh, the mushroom bargies were something. The shimla curry, the the peppers, yeah. the red peppers. Oh, it was gorgeous. The corner calf, that was the best yeah. Murray yeah. imaginable. Yeah. So, uh, oh, and the we, chapatis, the chapatis were just was, floated off the table. It, it oh, was the beautiful. Memories. Plastic tablecloths, fluorescent lighting. Oh, fabulous food. It really I remember was. Gita. I, I remember Gita. Oh, do you? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that would have been a treat. And it wasn't yes. expensive, but it was a wonderful place to go. So we yeah. planned that. Decided to get home early because, um, you know, the curfew was, was happening. And even Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time, was suggesting that women should not go out alone because there's this serial killer. So I thought, well, at least I can get home early. And I had put a couple of beers, uh, two tins of Pilsner Lager in my fridge so that if I wanted to carry on having a drink, I could watch late night telly and uh, and go to bed. So at least if I got home about nine, ten o'clock, I'd be all right. So that was the plan. So my friends were saying, right, do you, you, we'll, we'll walk you through. We'll walk you, we'll walk you through the university. I'm like, no, no, don't be daft. It's fine. It's not that late. It was about quarter to ten. Are you sure? Are you sure? I was like, oh, for God's sake, I'm sick of this. Yes, I'm going. So off I walked on my own uh, side of Woodhouse, um, at the park rather, through the university, which was quiet, unusually quiet. And I thought, gosh, everyone's taking this curfew very, very seriously. And so I thought, I'll just get a move on. I can get an, early, an earlier bus maybe than the one I was planning to get. So I thought I'll take a shortcut once I left the university grounds with the clock tower on my left. 
left and there was a church ahead of me. And I thought I can cut through to Woodhouse Lane. So I took a took a right, went down the road, noticed there was a light out. I thought, well, I can't turn back. I'm going to waste time if I turn back on my route. So I carried on walking down this poorly lit uh, road. And then I heard this voice calling me from behind. Hey, you, hi, hi. Really, really friendly, really chirpy, chippy and soft-spoken. And I thought, it must be someone I know. Well, they're going to waste my time. But I need to, maybe they're lost. I don't, I don't know. So I turned around and walked towards this young man who was about my height, about five, seven. And it was dark, but the street lights ahead, I could see his face. He had dark eyes and dark hair. And he wanted to engage in conversation. But he was holding himself really strangely in an awkward kind of slant. And he was holding one arm around his waist. And I looked at him and I thought, I don't recognise you. I've never seen you in my life before. So I, I just said, I'm sorry, bye. And then turned. And as I turned, I sensed the fear. What, what am I doing? Where the hell am I? What? So I started to run brisk, walk briskly. And then I could hear his footsteps behind me. And then I thought, I've got to run. I've got to run. I've got to get to the main road. So I started to run. And as I ran, his footsteps behind me got quicker and quicker and quicker and I could hear them really close and the next thing I felt this massive whack thud bang to the top of my head and I just saw the pavement coming straight up to, towards me and I blacked out so fortunately unbeknownst to me at the time I was on the floor and he was stood over me. Apparently I let out a scream as I fell, which I don't remember. And two students are walking across the top of the road and it stopped them. And they started to look back and they could see this huddled figure on the ground and this other figure leaning over me. And as they started to walk slowly, tentatively, he spotted them and stood up, looked and ran off. And when they got to me, I was choking on my own blood with my head in the gutter and they called an ambulance. But the the only, the nearest phone was in a, a booth where they had uh, security guards that held um, a barrier up to allow people in and out of the university. And he didn't take them seriously because he thought they were just students mucking about. After a lot of, um, explaining he did give them the phone and they phoned the the ambulance and that and I was transported to St James's Hospital and when I awoke I was really shocked because someone had taken all my clothes off I was in a hospital gown in a hospital bed and I'm like what the, what the heck am I doing here so I I tried to get up thinking that my shoes and clothes would be in the cabinet because I've been in hospital before next to me and I could not move my body at all. And my head felt like a lead weight. And a nurse came out in this kind of low-lit ward. And I, I'm I'm trying to explain through this gagging because I didn't realise the injuries. And she just injected me in the backside. And, and I woke up the next morning and apparently I'd suffered from a, a very badly fractured skull, a fractured cheekbone a very bad cut to the my left eye. I could could only see out of one eye very well. I had a birth defect in the other, so my eyesight was blurred. And I had my jaw had been completely cracked open and split apart. So that's why I couldn't talk, because I couldn't move my jaw. And I had blood-stained hair. And I remember looking down at my bedding and there was blood on the bedding and the sheets um and I, that was it it was a journey of very slow recovery after that but it was I was lucky so lucky to be alive I felt so lucky to be alive how long did you stay in hospital for well they wanted me out pretty quickly but they had to stop after all the swelling of the face and the bruising they couldn't operate until that had calmed down so that was three days in and then I went 
on my birthday, my 21st birthday into intensive care for them to crack the jaw back into place and wire all my teeth together. So I left after about 10 days. Did you remember what had happened to you with the attack or did somebody have to explain to you when you fully came round to consciousness? It took it took quite a while. It took days for me to really understand what had happened. I remember I remember talking to this ta- to this chap, and I remembered falling to the floor. But between that and ending waking up in hospital, I don't remember anything. And I've often wondered whether it was just a mechanism of self defence not to remember what what happened during that time before I was rescued. Um, And so that was why I couldn't quite understand what had happened or how it had happened or who could have done such a thing. And it was, it it took a while. And then people were saying, have you seen your face? Have you seen your scar? Do you know what happened? And the police came, they did come to take a statement, the one and only statement. And that's when I realised it was very serious because the police were coming to see me. That was like, oh, God, this wasn't just someone deciding to beat me up. And we use the term in Liverpool, kick your head in. I thought someone had kicked my head in for doing something or not doing something. Yeah. So about after about when I got out of hospital and, you know, I didn't read the papers, uh, until many weeks, it was about three weeks or so, and then I realised that there was a possibility that it could have been the serial killer, but no, it couldn't be. I'm an innocent art student, who the heck? No, it's not him, can't be him. So I was left with this, who the heck would do that to me? That was that was the way I was thinking. But I thought, whatever, I survived. I've got to get back on the horse and get back into university, do my degree, because it was the final year, in my third year. And the best thing to do is just be in denial and pretend nothing happened. Get over mm-hmm. it, get scars healed, you know, wash the blood out of your hair, which I did, which was wonderful. It took a while. You know, I couldn't I couldn't lie down for, for a month because of my neck. I had stab wounds, puncture wounds in the base of my skull which they later informed me was was done with a screwdriver. I just I'm 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 at art school. I'm not having any of this. I'm not I don't belong to this culture of violence and fear. That's not me. That's not Mo. So I I kind of buried it and it served me well to a certain extent. I think it's a very, very sensible response. Yeah. Women are quite well versed in doing this and girls and mm abused kids or women who've suffered life-threatening attacks such as you have and we we protect ourselves in order to carry on Mm. and we refuse to accept the narrative that something like this has to ruin your life and Mm. and this is to me what feminist resistance is no we will not let you ruin my life yeah. You have ended the lives of women. Yeah. You have ended lives of children. I'm not one of them, and I will mm. not have it. I was not going to be beaten. I was not going to be battered and left beaten. I was absolutely not. I'd survived Liverpool life at the time right. in the 70s and the misogyny and the bullying and the the, the names and the put-downs and the fights in the street, and I wasn't going to let this no way. I was just stepping out of that, stepping out of that shadow and carrying on with what I wanted to do. Yeah, I felt very lucky to be a a student and not in Liverpool, although Liverpool is a wonderful place. But at the time, you know, I was I was in a better position and I was not going to have any of that. No, no one's going to no one can get power over me with violence. No way. But in the meantime, though, what's Mm. really telling about the absolute incompetence at best of the way that the police were investigating attacks on women in the north of England and not piecing them together was that you weren't really taken seriously as far as they were concerned as a potential victim of who they were calling the Yorkshire Ripper and I refused to call him that. 
yeah, of Peter. They were calling him. Yeah. Yes, they were. So, so when did you first hear of the police suspicions that he may have attacked you? And did they ever take anything that you told them seriously from that night? The description of him. Did they ask about his accent, for example? Because, of course, there was the the hoaxer who we now know to be a man called John Humble. John Humble, the hoaxer, yeah. Yeah, And he had a northeast accent. And so they were refusing to accept the testimony of survivors such as yourself (laughs) that this man had a West Yorkshire accent. Yeah. So I was very articulate as a young student and very vocal. And I also had an extremely good visual memory because I was an artist. And I explained what I saw, the dark eyes, the dark curly hair, the the olive skin, the fact that, well, I'd been attuned to a West Yorkshire accent, so I certainly did not hear a Geordie accent. I was the first witness on the scene it was me who was he was trying to murder but I was I was an eyewitness with a real rich sense of what I saw and what I heard and the fact that he was holding himself strangely no they did not want to know any of that and the reason they didn't want to know anything that I was saying is because they were embarrassed everyone was thinking how on earth can I not have found this man after so many years and they thought well if this is another ripper victim as they were calling it then we're going to look ridiculous, you know, on a Saturday night, quarter to ten, and we can't even... So they they downplayed it. They absolutely downplayed it through embarrassment and because they wanted to, to preserve their identity, protect and serve, and they were becoming ridiculous. And their reputation was rock bottom. So that's one of the reasons they downplayed my, my case. And when you saw the photo fit Mm-mm. of the man who we then knew mm. was Peter Sutcliffe mm. after his arrest. Mm. How did that feel? Because you must have recognised the man. I, I did I did somewhat recognise, but the photo fits included a beard and a moustache, and I didn't see that. I saw I saw the eyes and the hair, you know, the the, the very right. thick hair. And I didn't recognize the mustache and beard because my my two brothers grew a mustache and beard and then shave it off and then another beard then just a mustache so I didn't I didn't recall that so I don't know whether he had a scarf on or was covered but that is not one thing I I did notice so strangely I half recognized but then I didn't because I also didn't want to recognize the fact that it was the serial killer that had attacked me I only recognized that it was Peter Sutcliffe when his face came on the news television. I was home after Christmas. I think it was New Year. Yeah, it was New Year before I was about to go back to university to do the fine art degree. And there was a, a shot of, of this young man, and I think he had a jacket on. It wasn't the photo fit. It wasn't the iconic photograph of him in his bow tie taken at a wedding. It was the film footage of him getting from a prison van into a court. That's that's the man. That's who tried to kill me. And I fell to my knees in horror of what could have happened next. Mo Lee, Maureen Lee, rip a victim. Right. No. So I didn't tell anyone. My mum and dad were out. No one was watching the news with me. I didn't watch any more news. I just thought, I am not having that. I'm not going to be identified as this victim of, I'm not, I just absolutely, the horror of it, of, of being victim, blame, being, being seen as a victim of a serial killer. It wasn't in my future plan. And oh. I wasn't, I was just absolutely not having it. I didn't right. want anything to do with it at all. So I was you in know- denial for many years. That's really, really interesting because obviously it wasn't long after he attacked you that he was caught. Because the timeline, the way that it goes, is that he attacked you in the October of 1980. Mm. He followed me in the November of 1980. And I went to the police and did the photo fit and they said, no, it can't have been him because you've just told me he's got a Yorkshire accent. An hour man. An hour man, they said. To oh, me. my. Dimwits. They said, an hour man, Julie Love. 
has got an accent <laughs> like yours because I'm from the northeast and I sounded very northeast at the time. I'd only just not long left home. Mm. But I did the photo fit. I insisted on it. And it turned out that my photo fit was amongst the many others of the women who'd either followed or attacked. But police ignored us. We know this. And they did much worse than that. So he followed me in the November. And three days later, he murdered Jacqueline Hill, who was to yes. be his final victim, yes. in Headingley, close to where you and I both lived at the time. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt when you heard about Jacqueline Hill? I was, I was, I was absolutely mortified that this student had been killed, and and then I felt, I felt kind of embarrassed and a little bit confused and guilty because perhaps I should have banged on the police's door and given them a better photo fit or a better description. And then I thought, well, it, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But if I had the courage to have done it, maybe she could have been survived. Maybe she survived. No, so, no, it was not your fault. It was not your fault. It was a kernel in me that I, I just sat with me for decades and decades until more recently I've met her sister, who's um, who's a wonderful human being and has helped me get over that feeling. This is incredible because I hear two things that you're saying that I absolutely identify with and I think women all over the world can identify with. The first is it was almost as though you were stigmatised by the attack yes. by him on you. The stigma yeah. obviously should be on him and the police that wouldn't yes. investigate the attacks on women, but the stigma was on you yes. and the guilt of his subsequent victim. Yeah. Was on you. Now, yeah. I felt I the stigma mm -hmm. that I felt when I, I, I was raped when I was 16 by a, a man that I knew who was, who was 24 and we went, to a, we went to a rock concert together. ACDC, I should have been in prison for going to an ACDC. <laughs> and he should be in prison for the rape, obviously. But but I was 16. Humor. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and I also was given a paper guitar, one of those cardboard guitars to play when we got in there. I, I can't talk about this. Talk about It's all right. It's okay. We, we're all right with it. It's okay. I hope I'm in a safe <laughs> space. Okay. Okay. Trigger warning. Yeah. Cardboard guitars, ACDC concerts. But on the way back from this, from this concert, he, we were in one of those old fashioned trains divided into carriages. We were coming from. Oh, New yeah. Oh. Oh, they were dangerous places. Dangerous. We were on our own and he decided to rape me. He got away with it. And then I became a feminist quite soon after that. Fast forward to Leeds. I moved there a year later. Fast forward to this serial killer stalking the streets and the misogyny that was unveiled. Mm. And I was already in a, a, a feminist group where we were making sense of what men did to women and why they got away with it. And the misogyny of the so-called Ripper investigation. And I heard that this man who'd raped me, by which time I was feeling very angry about, I had I minimized bet. it. Oh, I denied it, I'd minimized it. Okay. It hadn't happened. Interesting. Then I got angry because of the feminism. Yeah. And then I heard that he had seriously sexually assaulted his niece. Oh. I felt oh. I was to blame for that. I felt I was to blame for that uh, because I hadn't reported him to the police. Oh, it didn't dear. occur to me that who was to blame for it was first the rapist, secondly the police that tell us that if we report rapes, we'll be splashed all over the newspapers because we barely yes. even had anonymity then. The yeah. culture that was so misogynistic that it encouraged men and yeah. actually actively forgave men for sexual violence. No, no, no. I was to blame. Mm. Mm. So yeah. we're talking about similar things, aren't we here? We are. The, the parallel is, is very deeply unsettling, but we felt that we couldn't talk. We we, we felt gagged um, because if you if you explain to, to anyone and verbalise it and make things very concrete and then it's written, it turns from thoughts to words to writing to the media, the hype, mm. you're... 
I I felt and you'd obviously felt that you're kind of making a trap for yourself. That's right. Weirdly. That's right. Because that was the you just if you were going to be believed, then they would sensationalize you and and and, and stereotype you. And Weird culture. Well, it was, and also at the the time that I was raped, we're talking about the you know towards the end of the seventies. We're talking about no anonymity for women that reported rape, a culture that just actively encouraged men to sexually assault. We had Benny Hill on the telly, literally. Oh, Benny Hill! Oh, I mean that that normalised the worst of male behaviour. It really did normalise, and it reflected the worst of male behaviour. Yeah, but then at the same time, we've Mm -hmm. got the stigma that we both felt with our various atrocities we went through with male violence. Because, and this is my, I'm not putting words in your mouth, this is my my view on it. Women that were raped were seen as complicit, filthy slags. No better than they ought to be, even if we were 16-year-old virgins. No better than we ought to be, and I, I don't use the term virgin, I'm talking about newspaper or misogynistic terminology. Well, that's absolutely true. But, were, but also were, Sutcliffe's <laughs> victims were seen as filthy slags out mm. on the street, no mm. better than there ought to be, prostituting, yeah. not looking yeah. after their kids. Why would either you or I, mm. this is a terrible thing to say to those victims, we're not saying it to those victims, we're condemning the misogyny that made us feel yeah. like we didn't want to be one of those women. And those mm. women were a complete misogynistic social construct by sexist dinosaur men. But it made, I think it made me feel I couldn't join the ranks of raped women or girls. No. Slags. That's fascinating because if you, as soon as you say it and admit it, and no matter how innocent you were, you always felt guilty, tarnished. You deserved it. You were asking for it. Who's going to believe you? Who's going to believe you? And if you're serious, you know how serious an accusation this is, don't you? Like, well, yeah. But. There was always that positioning that you were the slag, the tart. Well, fucking hell, you know, how, how low was your dress? How how short was your skirt? Were you wearing stilettos? And what, you know, asking questions about what you're wearing. Did you have makeup on? Well, then, here you go. You see, you're an attractive young woman, aren't you? You see, there you are. Don't you realise that you're, you're bait for men? That's what we were, bait. Well, I'll tell you something now, Mo. Mm. You and I, thank God we've met each other. Yeah. Because what we're going to do now in the next section of this fantastic conversation Mm. is talk about anger, resistance, and how some incredible art and activism can come out of the worst things that happen to women. And I want to ask you about your art, about your work, and about how much of that is informed by traumatic experience and by resisting the narrative of victimhood? Well, it was informed and fueled by anger. I was an angry young feminist and, you know, not exactly, I wouldn't say I was unstable, but I didn't have anywhere to vent my anger, so I used my artwork as an outlet. And I was looking at uh, the, the newspapers and the cartoonists at the time, the satirical uh, Ralph Steadman and and they were making very clever, witty compositions representing aspects of social uh, social culture and political culture. And I adapted that style and I looked at um, very old-fashioned Jim James Gilray, George Crookshank, mm. Rowlandson, all of these male. Uh, activist artists who could quite easily with a clever drawing make a comment about you know the the social blunders the political hierarchy and all of that so I was I was fueled by that and I worked in black and white I had no color in my life and I started to do uh, I made one picture of a screaming genderless being clutching the walls of high-rise flats because you couldn't walk the streets. You could wow. not walk the streets. If you were walking the streets, you were in danger. And this creature's looking down in horror, this kind of cartoony, weird, weird figure. So that was one thing that I did before I was attacked. 
And after I was attacked, I started to draw the way that I felt, which included the crouched, again, genderless human being, thin, because I became very thin because I couldn't eat, uh, crouched on the floor and in a prison cell. I felt imprisoned by my anger and my fear and grief all rolled into one. And I did massive pen and ink drawings of of social commentary about the police who are represented as pigs and and missing the point completely, looking at each other, but not looking at what was right in their face. And I also made the most powerful picture when they caught Sutcliffe and the baying to bring back capital punishment, um, bring back hanging, you know, hang the bastard, hang the bastard. You could hear on the TV screens of the news, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. Violent, violent, violent reactions. So I drew this etching of a hangman's uh, uh, structure, like the one you draw when you play hangman's uh, words, mm. with a noose down it. And in the in the neck of the noose was Sutcliffe. And I was I drew myself pulling the noose tighter around him while he was about to put his hands down the throat of another victim and hit her over the head with a hammer. So caught in the act, and it created a triangle with the rope, me pulling him off one end through the noose and him attacking a woman, because who the hell has the right to kill this person, this human being? And I thought, well, I'm so angry, I'll be happily, I would happily pull that rope and kill him. So this became a very powerful image. Right. And at the same time, presumably, this is a form of therapy that you're yeah. you're working out the pain and the turmoil and the trauma, mm. which must have been significant. But you it were functioning, was. and you were highly functioning. I was highly functioning, but if I didn't do the drawings, I don't think I would have been highly functioning. You know, I'd do these drawings, and my friends would look in horror. You know, they were all painting different kinds of work, let me say. And when I arrived at art school, I was really good at making beautiful, exquisite, detailed drawings of natural forms. But that was not how I was feeling. And my degree show it was full of hospital wards and broken bones and people crouching and, and hiding in these darkened interiors. The whole show had about 16 pictures and etchings and drawings of this the way that I felt. But I'm stood in front of the camera smiling, you know, wearing a mm. pink blouse or something. It was mm -hmm. like weird. Talk yeah. of cheese. Happy because I am a happy person, naturally happy person, always cracking a joke, you know, and and then these dark, dark, satirical, deeply sinister images that I that were part of me and became part of me after I was attacked. But I think because of the working class and misogynistic background that I was brought up in the anger finally came out you know as a 21 year old woman and I was doing a lot of those drawings with my mouth wired up I couldn't speak but I could draw how I felt that is incredible I just made a podcast series about an unsolved murder at the time uh, for 30 years of a child called Nikki Allen in Sunderland mm. Mm. and the police had monumentally messed up that investigation also. Mm. She was murdered in 1992. They got the wrong man. He was acquitted, thankfully. And the mother, Sharon Henderson, fought for justice, which she finally got when David Boyd, who murdered her daughter, who the police had overlooked, a convicted child sex offender who lived three doors down from where Nikki went missing, was sent to prison for life in May this year. So... One of the things that really struck me, I've known Sharon Henderson very well for a number of years. I first wrote about it back in 2006. Yeah. And interestingly, the the man that prosecuted John Humble, the so-called Ripper hoaxer. Oh, yes. Um, he, he was also on the, uh, he was the KC, the, the lead barrister who convicted David Boyd. Nikki Allen's murder mm. and I thought I knew Sharon Henderson very well as far as you could uh, with the relationship we had as a journalist and a campaigner mm. Mm. but I didn't know till after we'd finished making the podcast that because she'd had a life of 
abuse as a child. She she had a life in care. Then she had four girls, four children by the age of 25 when seven-year-old Nikki was murdered. I had no idea that Sharon at that time was totally 100% illiterate. She could not read a word and she could not write a word. Oh, wow. And she learned, she taught herself how to do that so she could write letters to the Queen, to her MP, to the Prime Minister, to newspapers about her daughter's unsolved case. And I'm I'm seeing a parallel here in a way. It's sort of like you've got your jaw completely wired up and you can't speak. Sharon wants to write a letter to get her anger and feelings out about the fact that the police messed up this case and she still doesn't have justice. And she has to teach herself this skill that nobody else had wow. taught her. I mean, the restrictions and the restraints that women carry around, and yet we break through these barriers yes. in order to fight against it, don't we? Yes, yes, absolutely. You can't keep a good scouser down, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, at least the, that part of Liverpool culture was was very empowering, you know. Uh, despite what else was going on, and my my mum would not, not not take any rubbish from anyone. You know, right. she knew right from wrong, and she would say so, but she did it quietly, but poignantly, and the point where you would be like, "Okay, you've over over reached the mark. You've overstepped the mark." So my mum was very. Uh, she wasn't shouty. She's a very quiet woman, but if you did wrong, you knew you'd done it just by one look, and. It was yeah, the quiet look, isn't it? That can I be know much that more one. powerful than the the screaming, you know, banging fist banging things that the blokes did. You know, turn the bloody dining room table over while you're because you're you're upset that you know the news isn't on in time or your meal isn't on the table. I'm going off on a tangent, but my background it was it was not calm. But drawing yeah. is calming. Writing is calming. Writing, all you can hear is the pen on paper. Drawing, all you can hear is the pencil on the cartridge paper. These are quiet things to do, but what they produce can be very, very powerful. So yes. my voice was was a visual world, and and that other lady, she managed to articulate her her anger through her campaigning letters. That's that's remarkable. And and if you if you're told to shut up all the time as a woman, well you're gonna find another way to make your message heard, aren't you? Well this is the joy of feminism, isn't it? Because we give each other a collective voice. So when one of us can't speak, the other one speaks on our behalf. Yes. And then we speak as a group. And there are there are so, so, so many women that whose lives were curtailed and affected. And some were mm. ended, of course, mm. by Sutcliffe. But there's also a far wider group of women, the entire planet, mm. where we understand the fear and reality of male violence. And yeah. that there are women, because not yes. everybody is a feminist, obviously. Not everybody mm. does the work that we do in our different ways to, mm. to tackle male violence. Mm. But there are women in every country in the world that say, no, we are not having it. We will stop these men from doing it. They are not entitled to do it. And women do not deserve this and women deserve better. Is that the way that you see your art? And in your teaching career, is that a message, whether implicit or explicit, that you pass on to your students or your colleagues? I I certainly pass on the message that you can say. You can say remarkable things through visual imagery. But one thing as a teacher educator, I was a university lecturer for art education where a lot of my students would would come into the lecture theatre and I'd start talking to them about art history. (laughs) And I would start start the lecture. So hands up, how many artists, you know, we've got Picasso, Dali, Henry Moore. And going on, I said, right, that's, that's quite enough now. Hands up, can you just name some female artists, please? And they're like, no. I said, well, if I give you the handout that you've been sent, there we are. Just turn it over and have a look. And there's an example of the work that they're doing and the the age that they were when they were doing it. So this is what we need to balance out. And the national curriculum I wrote, I should have got it published, um, a document explaining that all the examples in the national curriculum that was published in 19... 98 something like that teaching art and everything that was broken down I said all your examples 
for all of the schemes of work mostly were men and I, I offered alternatives to complement the skills that were needed in the art education and I wrote it all up but I, I taught that continuously and I told the young women who were mainly young women who were coming into teaching you know that you 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 can't take them to the library. It's full of European white dead male artists. What are they learning? I can't be an artist because I'm not white and I'm not a man. Like, just stop it now. And I was very, very insistent on 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 claiming that you know you cannot you cannot continue to work in this European style of what great artists are. This is a nonsense. So I was I was known for that. So I carried it on through my teaching. <laughs> Do you ever feel, I mean, obviously I'm so delighted that you made contact with me and I'm really thrilled. Me too. To, yes, it's just such a joy that that we're in mm -hmm. touch. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any kind of plans to move forward with the work that you've been doing through your art, through any other medium. I mean, obviously, you know, my, my, my campaigning and my mm. writing are very, yeah. very straightforwardly. Yeah. end male violence or I'll write about how I hate sourdough bread because everyone's yeah. got to have a break right yeah well I did write, write about... a book I, I did I wrote a book and um it's a good read it's an interesting read it's not kind of this happened to me that am to me woe is me it's a really interesting read on how I survived and the artwork that I made but currently I'm working with an independent filmmaker who's who's filming my artwork and one of uh, the films that were made was me making a projection onto the Houses of Parliament where I animated the statue of Lady Justice, the statue that sits on the Old Bailey uh, Gold Dome, which is very iconic, but that's where Sutcliffe was sentenced. And on the 40th anniversary of his sentence, I made this animation where the scales of justice that she holds in one hand start to tilt, this, this symbol of of equality and outpour from one tilted uh, scale, the symbol, the female symbol, which falls out and then another and then another, and they fall to the floor and disappeared until the pouring out and the, the scales imbalance and the scale that had the women's symbol and absolutely falls off and drops to the floor as a me message to say, there is no equal balance in the law of women who have been affected by violent attacks. There is a massive imbalance of justice. And so that was projected onto the Houses of Parliament and onto the, the side where their library is housed, where the Bifidence report uh, that was commissioned by the Home Office to investigate the West Yorkshire Police sat in their dusty archives and not really worked on. So it was a powerful, symbolic piece yes. of artwork that's been filmed. And I've also been filmed... Um, I had some brilliant psychoanalysis and psychotherapy called schema conditioning therapy by uh, um, Nick and Eva Speakman, who were on ITV this morning. And I had some brilliant treatment where I was at, a, able to draw the iconic picture of Peter Sutcliffe with his bow tie smiling into the camera. And that was used a lot and still is in, in whenever they, they talk about him. And I drew it with great detail. My partner walked in and nearly fainted. Like, what the hell are you doing drawing that face? Of all the people you could draw, of all the things you could draw. I said, no, 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 it's for this project I'm doing. So I managed to get a very good likeness of it. And we, we put it in a studio and I was filmed ripping up the ripper's face, shredding the eyes and cutting out the mouth and, and tearing it in half. And all the pieces of the drawing fall to the floor. And I'm filmed walking over these shreds of this iconic image. So that was so brilliant. So I'm using film as well now to, um, to illustrate my campaign. And where can we find your book and give us the title? Because I know that many of our listeners will want to look at your work. Yeah. We'll be putting a link to your website. Okay. Your book title? So my book, sadly, I have used the word the Yorkshire River because I got caught up in the Masco, Macho Publishing Agency. And they said, well, you'd sell more if you use the word the Yorkshire River. So it's called Facing the Yorkshire River, The Art of Survival. Well, and I've it, read that book, Mo, and it is a brilliant read. It's so enlightening. It really does say it as it is, rather you. than, as you say, a kind of 
pathetic victim narrative that is put upon us. This yeah. is the thing. You know, yeah. we, I, if women want to refer to themselves as victims, that can be very powerful because that yeah. is acknowledging that men have victimised us. Yeah. But the word survivor should belong to every single one of us because we survive things all the time with yeah. men's harassment, male violence, and something huge that you survived. You've now gone on to make a difference to other women, and that... I hope it's, I do hope that that you've inspired people, and that I may have inspired people, and that that's very empowering. It'd be wonderful to hear what people think of what you and I are doing. I think yes. I'd like to ask the listeners to have mm. an interaction with us to when they've listened to this podcast episode, to send in their thoughts, to send in their questions, to send in any anything that might come into their heads that's inspired mm. them or that's confused or puzzled them and then maybe in two or three weeks time yeah we come back on here and we can actually have an interactive chat and answer the questions and answer the comments and disagree or agree with what's been said by those that are engaging with this with this podcast what do mm. you think i think that would be great particularly if they've watched the long shadow and listened to us and of course, the, you know, women of the area at the time, I'm probably think, gosh, you know, I remember this. And it would be super to communicate with, with the community that, that listened to the podcast. I think that would be very enriching. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you for listening. Mo is an inspiration to me. And I'm really glad that we're now friends. And we would as we say at the end of the interview, love to engage with you, the listener, with any of your questions or your comments or just your thoughts about the discussions that we've had about policing, misogynistic press reporting, and about survival. Until next time. <laughs>